0: Well, it may not look it, but I'm actually a pretty unfit kind of guy. Uh, It may look it to some of you, I don't know, I try to just hide it inside the clothes, but I'm not very fit and I hate exercise. Um, Exercise is hard, right? I think that's kind of the point. You're meant to stretch yourself and push yourself beyond the limits of what your body feels good with because that's how you actually get fitter and grow. They say no pain, no gain. Uh, That's not fun. Now, as much as I don't like it, I do try. I try to keep my body a bit healthy and on Friday, my day off, I went for a walk, I parked my car and thought, okay, I'm going to walk 45 minutes up to the Michael Joseph Savage Memorial. It's out on the east coast, it looked beautiful in the photos. Anyway, I'm walking along Tamaki Drive and the wind is just whipping off the water into my face and it is freezing cold, I don't have enough clothes on, it's starting to rain, like my mind is just going to the people sitting comfortably in a cafe, drinking a mug of hot chocolate. I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm just going to go back and get in my car and drive to a cafe. Uh, Now, I didn't do that, and you'll hear more about that story a bit later on, but the Christian life can feel like that sometimes, can't it? Like we're walking against a headwind. We're going in one direction, and the rest of the world is going in another direction. As we've been seeing throughout Hebrews, we as Christians are those who are striving to enter God's heavenly rest. We're those who recognize that this world is not our home, that we are foreigners and strangers here. And yet, day after day, we're bombarded by temptations, tempting us to cling to this world, advertisements trying to sell us treasures in this world, and we're surrounded by people who think we're fools some of those people, they're living quite comfortably. They've got nice houses, they're flatting with nice people, they might have the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend. You're looking at their life and you're wondering, they've got it good and they don't think about God at all and they think that I'm a fool. They might not say that explicitly, sometimes they will say that to your face but even when they're not saying it, you feel their disappointment or their sense of scorn. It can be easier, it can get to a point in life where you feel like, life would just be easier, be more comfortable if I take Jesus a bit less seriously, or perhaps even get Him out of my life completely, turn my back on Him and join the crowd. It's a battle to keep trusting Jesus in a world that doesn't think much of Him, and that battle gets tiring. Hebrews is a book written to Christians who are feeling tired. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, the passage that was read out. Keep your Bibles open there. Find an outline in the bulletin as well that you can follow along with too. Hebrews 12. Let's try to get a sense of what these Christians are going through. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. So, these Christians need to be encouraged in this because they've been running a long race and they're tiring, they're losing their heart, losing their motivation to keep going in the Christian life. We see this again a bit further down in verse 12, he's a slightly different language, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. He's describing these Christians, they're tired, they're weakened, they're lame and as a result they're in danger of making the same kind of stupid mistake as Esau. Notice Esau there in verse 16, make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. in case you're not familiar with the story, let me catch up quickly on Esau. So Esau was one of the sons of Isaac. Esau and Jacob were the twin brothers. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Esau, as the firstborn son, had the right to the family inheritance, which included all the great promises that God had made to Abraham. Promises that they'd walk into a, a beautiful land, that they'd be a great nation, that their nation would be a blessing to other nations. Esau as the firstborn. This was his birthright. This was his inheritance. And yet, One day, Esau was out hunting or farming in the field, working up a sweat, and he came home to find his brother Jacob making a stew. The stew tasted good or smelt good, and Esau was tired, so he said to his brother Jacob, oh, give me some food. Jacob, being the trickster younger brother, said, I'll give you some food if you sell me your inheritance, sell me that birthright. And Esau, the fool, said, yeah, I'll take one bowl of stew in place of all of that inheritance. It's like trading in a million-dollar inheritance in the future for 10 bucks now. I'll take the $10 now, thanks. That's too far in the future. It doesn't bother me. That's just the danger that Hebrews is trying to warn us as Christians about. You know, throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been hearing snippets about the long-term reward that Jesus has achieved for us. In chapter 1, verse 14, it was the inheritance of a great salvation. In 2, verse 5, it's the world that is coming. In 2 verse 10, it's entry into God's glory and holiness. Chapters 3 and 4, it's the entry into God's everlasting rest. Well, here in chapter 11 verse 14, it's the hope, 12 verse 14, sorry, it's the hope of seeing the Lord. This is the finish line of the race that is the Christian life. There's this reward stored up for us, entry into God's perfect new world, where He will pour blessing upon blessing over us eternal pleasures at God's right hand. This is the hope of the new covenant that Jesus set up in His death. Now, none of us deserve to receive this reward from God. It's not as though we've been good enough and so He pays us back for our goodness in some sense. Not at all. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. But as Hebrews has been showing us, Jesus has come as our great high priest. He has died the death that we deserved And now, if we come to Him, if we confess our sin and trust in Jesus, trust that Jesus' death really has taken our punishment, then God forgives our wickedness and remembers our sins no more. So, having been forgiven, this hope, this long-term gain, this future is stored up for us who trust in Jesus. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you to hear everything else that's said tonight through this lens? God loves you and would love to see you in heaven, in the new creation. That long-term gain is worth any short-term pain that we're going to talk about as we go through tonight. So, as you sit here tonight, can I plead with you, come to Jesus. Come and receive this reward from God. Come and lay down the you know, pride that would stop you from trusting in Jesus? He died for you. He took your punishment. Will you let Him have that and take that? Or will you keep denying that you deserve punishment from God? Or trying to work off that punishment in some other way? Come to Jesus tonight. For those of us who do trust in Jesus... Hebrews has shown us this great long-term hope. It's a a solid hope that can be an anchor for our souls. The hope of eternity at rest, spent face to face with the Creator God as He pours out blessing like a waterfall over us. We rejoice in Him and His love. That's the future. But these Christians that Hebrews is written to, they're in danger of trading in that long-term future for short-term pleasure, just like Esau. They were tired weary, weakened, in danger. The reason they're feeling that way, well, it's described in verse 4. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Repeatedly encountering the temptation to sin, in whatever form that might be, whatever sins hold the strongest temptation for you to encounter that temptation and to say no repeatedly, well, that takes energy, doesn't it? That gets tiring. But notice that it's more than the struggle against sin in the abstract that the Christians here are facing. Because in verse 4, it's described as a struggle that could potentially lead to them shedding blood, that is, them dying. Abstract sin, well, it can't do that. Uh, These guys, though, they were living in a city in a community amongst people that were actively hostile towards them. Uh, That's why Jesus' experience in verse 3 could be an encouragement to them. Have a look at verse 3, consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. So, what were these guys experiencing? They were facing hostility from sinners. Now, they weren't yet being killed for their faith, but the hostility was strong and forceful and it was headed in that direction of one day resulting in martyrdom and death. We know that it was state-sanctioned persecution. The government was involved in this. We know that because in chapter 10 and 13, it talks about some of them being put in prison. We know as well from chapter 10 that they were having their property confiscated. It was taken off them. Now, can you imagine if there was that kind of threat as we gathered here for church tonight? If there was the threat that police might storm in here and drag some of us off to prison, w- would you still be here if that was a real potential? Now, I know that there are some amongst us for whom there is a concern that secret police from their country might be amongst us and find out and things will happen for families back home. That's a reality. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is the reality of gathering as Christians. In that kind of environment, with that kind of hostility, how tempting would it be to give up on Jesus? To just fall into line with how everyone else around you is living? To go with the flow? Now, that's the heart of the book of Hebrews as a whole. Everything that we've been seeing about Jesus, all the things that He is better than. It's been written to say to people who are going through tough times, you know, stick with Jesus. He's the best. There's nowhere else to go. Stay with Him. He is worth it. And to say, come to God for the help that you need to keep going. So, as you come to Hebrews 12, what does that add in to that mix of everything that we have been seeing? When we go through tough times, whether that be persecution for being Christian, or just any kind of suffering and hardship, I think there are two questions that can trouble us as Christians. Has God lost control, and has He turned against me? When you fail a paper at uni and you have to resit it, or when your visa doesn't come through and you have to leave New Zealand, or when the diagnosis of cancer comes from the doctor, or when you get that phone call that says your father has died, has God lost control? Has God turned against me? What is going on? The resounding answer to these two questions from Hebrews 12 is no. No, God has not lost control. No, God has not turned against you. Rather, God is in control, even in your pain. And He is acting sovereignly as a perfect Father, Disciplining you in love. Now, this is a challenging message, but it is a comforting message. So, let me show you first of all that this is what Hebrews 12 is saying. Read with me from verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly, or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Who is responsible for the pain and suffering that these Christians are going through? Well, the first answer is that it is coming from the hostile will of sinful enemies. But that's not the main answer. That's not the decisive answer of Hebrews 12. The main answer is God is in charge here. What enemies are doing to you out of sinful hostility, God is doing out of fatherly discipline. This is extremely important for knowing our God and for living by faith through the suffering that is coming sooner or later in your life. Notice very carefully, this passage does not say that God looks on while hostile sinners hurt His people Or while Satan ravages Christians and only then steps in to turn it all for good. That is not what the text says. It says that God is disciplining us. Now, I'm aware that this language of discipline comes with lots of associations for us. For some of us, parental discipline is positive. We had parents who disciplined us well and we respect them for the way they trained us. That's the camp that I fall into. My parents were well thought out in the way that they disciplined us as kids. They set good boundaries and they had consequences for overstepping those boundaries. They kept their word with consistency. They punished when they said they would. They rewarded when they said they would. But for others, and I'm sure for some of us here tonight, this language of parental discipline is negative. Indeed, it's terrible and tragic because... Your experience, perhaps, was not discipline, but abuse. And so, let me be clear, God does not condone domestic abuse in any form. If that was your experience growing up, then know tonight God has seen that. That pain is not foreign to Him, it's not unknown to Him, He has seen it and He will bring it to account. Given that we come to this passage with all those different associations of discipline, with this broad spectrum of experience, we need to tread carefully because the tendency will be to read our experiences into what this passage is saying, into our understanding about or feelings about this passage and about God. So, what is the Bible saying when it talks about discipline? Well, the Bible draws a clear distinction between discipline and abuse. Discipline is something that is not done out of anger, but is done out of love, with the good of the person who is being disciplined inside. So, Jeremiah, jot this down in your notes if you're taking notes, Jeremiah 10 verse 24, Jeremiah actually calls out to God asking to be disciplined. He says, "'Discipline me, Lord, but with justice, not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing.' And notice what Jeremiah recognises there. Discipline has an appropriate measure, a measure that accords with justice. When disciplinary action is inspired by anger, well, it can easily overstep the bounds and become abusive. It becomes no longer about the good of the child being disciplined, but simply about the person disciplining venting their own anger on the child. So, it's also vital, we've seen discipline and abuse separate in Scripture. Discipline is also not punishment. Now, if you're reading the Scriptures carefully at this point, you're going, but hang on, doesn't verse 6 say God punishes those whom He receives? That's what you should be doing, you should be checking what I'm saying. Uh, and you'd be right, this is one of those points where we have good translations of the Scriptures, the Holman I love, it's a great translation. At this point, they're trying to soften what the text is saying. So, they use this word punish, where it's actually what would be a stronger word to carry over into English, that God flogs or beats those whom He receives. Now, we'll come back to what that means in a second, but notice at this point, discipline is not punishment. Sometimes when we're suffering, we think, what did I do yesterday that means I'm suffering like this today? What sin is God punishing me for? What did I do last week that now, as I come here, God is giving me the consequence for? but that is wrong thinking. That's thinking based on karma, not on grace. So, we've already seen, if you've been with us through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus has taken all our punishment. His death is the full punishment for our sin, so that, end of chapter 10, God has now forgiven us, and remembers our sins no more. He cannot then now be talking about punishment as we get to chapter 12. But we don't need logic to see this truth. I want you to come back with me to a passage in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible there, flick back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me fill you in on a bit of the context here. Well, lots of Hebrews has been talking about Israel's time in the wilderness. You know, we've been taken back to them hearing from God at Sinai. We've been taken back to the time when they hardened their hearts against Him in the wilderness. Uh, we've been taken back to the time when they had the tabernacle, That was the tent that they used to worship God in the wilderness period between coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 finds Moses speaking to the generation as they're about to head into that promised land, reminding them of this time in the wilderness. I, I suspect, given all that the wilderness has been in the mind of the author of Hebrews, that Deuteronomy 8 is there as we come to chapter 12 of Hebrews. So read with me from verse 2. Remember that the Lord your God... "'Led you on the entire journey these forty years in the wilderness, "'so that He might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, "'whether or not you would keep His commands. "'He humbled you by letting you go hungry. "'Then He gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, "'so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, "'but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. "'Your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these forty years.' keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. There's our key word, discipline. Now, what was the discipline in Deuteronomy 8? It was no particular punishment for particular sin, it was instead the difficulty of hunger, the difficulty of wilderness living with its daily reliance on God to provide manna. It was a tough time to live through, it was not comfortable for them, they were living in a desert, they were living in tents. But God led them through that time, that tough time, to grow them, to develop them, to train them. That is discipline. But we can see this even in Hebrews. Flick back to Hebrews and come to chapter 5. Completely hammer home this point that discipline is different to punishment. Have a look at chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 7. Note that here we're talking about Jesus. During His earthly life, He offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the One who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Though He was God's Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus never sinned. We know that from Hebrews 4, we know that from elsewhere in Scripture. So, God the Father was not punishing God the Son for His sins. What we see there in Hebrews 5 is that God was disciplining the Son. And Jesus grew. He was perfected through those sufferings. He learned obedience through what he suffered as he faced hostility and persecution. So when we get to Hebrews 12 and it tells us that our suffering is God actively disciplining us, we are not to think that we're being punished in any ongoing sense for our sins. The point's more general, also more comforting. Discipline, when properly thought about and properly done, is about achieving a good end for the child. And so, notice the good ends that God is accomplishing for us. Verse 9 of Hebrews 12. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But He does it for our benefit, so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And you pick up there the things that God is working in us? Life, holiness, peace, righteousness... He's growing our character, moulding us back into His image as we were first created before we rejected God in sin. This is the kind of character development that will last for eternity. So, what is God's role in Christian suffering? God is not a passive observer in our lives while sinners and Satan beat us up. God rules over sinners and Satan and they, unwittingly, though with no less fault and guilt, fulfill God's wise and loving purposes of discipline in our life. Some Christians simply won't believe this. They'll buck against this passage and say, no, my God is not like that. God is not in charge of the evil that happens to us. He's given the world over to Satan. He's given the world over to the free will of man. But friends, do you see that that just won't work with this passage. The hostility of sinners is real and it is wrong and God will hold them responsible and call them to account for it. But their hostility is also the loving, painful discipline of our Father in heaven. So God is not coming to His children late after the attack as we're already bleeding and wounded and saying, I can turn this for good. It's the difference between the surgeon and the emergency room doctor. The surgeon, before he's made a cut, plans the incision for our good. The emergency room doctor finds us beaten up after some accident and tries to stitch us up when we're already badly wounded. Hebrews 12 is saying that God is not that emergency room doctor, but the loving surgeon who plans what painful cuts to make so that He can make us whole again. Now, if that can be said of God working through the human wills of sinners who are hostile, well, the theologically easier thing to say is that this is also true of God working through sickness and natural disasters. Let me just try to flesh out the logic there. What Hebrews 12 is saying is that there are these hostile sinners who are persecuting Christians, but God is actually in that, disciplining His children. God has to work through the human wills of sinners. That's hard. It's much easier to say that God can work through something natural, like sickness or a natural disaster. Hebrews 12 is saying that the harder thing is true. It's actually easier to accept that the whole range of suffering is from God's hand as discipline. God disciplines His children in love for our good, So, what do we do? What do we do in light of this truth? What do we do if we're not suffering right now? Perhaps that's you this evening. You're coming here and you're like, this all sounds good and true, but uh, life's actually going pretty well for me. Perhaps you were surprised by verse 8 when we read that earlier. Perhaps a bit troubled. Have a look again at verse 8. If you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Four things for you to do this evening in response to this passage if you are not going through suffering right now. Number one, check that you are a child of God. It might be that you've already done an Esau, You've already stopped struggling against sin and started going with the flow of society. You've already traded in your long-term hope for short-term pleasure, such that now you don't actually look any different from your uni friend or your workmate. You have all the same values as them, your life just looks the same. Perhaps you were never running the Christian race to start with. Perhaps you know some things about Jesus and you come along to church every now and then, but really, Jesus for you is a backpack saviour. You know, you've got him there in your backpack and you can pull him out when you need him. But for most of the time, he just stays there out of sight, out of mind. That is not Christianity. The right response to Jesus is to let him be in the driver's seat of your life. To say to him, take my all, I'm yours, you lead me, you save me. To be a Christian is to have no other hope than Jesus, no other ruler of your life than Jesus. So, if you're not facing any opposition from society because you're a Christian, then it is worth checking yourself. Second thing to do, thank God for all that He is providing for you. So, perhaps you go out from here and you do check yourself and you realise, no, I am trusting Jesus, I have given my life to Him to rule and to lead and to save. Uh, But we're just living in a particular time of society where Christians are accepted. It might be ridiculed behind closed doors, but out in the open, we've seen okay. And perhaps at this point in life, you aren't going through any particular sickness or suffering or trial. In that time, thank God for what He is giving you. Thank God that He is being kind for you in this time and that He is not putting you through a particular trial. Third thing to do, prepare for future suffering knowing that it will come. If you are a child of God, then you will suffer in this life. You might never have fallen for that full-blown prosperity gospel that says, oh, you give money to church and you'll become a millionaire. You know, I think we're pretty good at recognizing that and saying that that's not what the Scriptures are saying. But I wonder if lots of us, myself included, have, I guess, a latent prosperity gospel or some skerrick of the prosperity gospel that just expects... Life is going to be sunshine and roses and lollipops most of the time. That's not the case. Suffering will come. Jesus prepares us for that. If they hated me, they will hate you, says Jesus. And it's good that we prepare ourselves for suffering when times are good. That we get our thinking right now about God and the way that He works through suffering so that when suffering does come, we won't be paralyzed, wondering, has God lost control? Has God turned against me? Is God punishing me for something? Get these answers locked into your mind now. Fourth thing to do, if you're not suffering right now, play the team game. I can assure you that amongst us as a church family, there are those who are suffering and going through quite some difficult times. Have a look at verse 12 to 16, back in Hebrews 12. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright, in exchange for one meal. And I want you to notice about those commands that they involve other people. Make sure that others are going okay. This is what we've been seeing throughout Hebrews, that the Christian life is not an individual sport, it's a team game. We're in this together and we need to support and help one another. So you might, not, you might be going pretty well right now, but you can get alongside those who are weary, those who are struggling, who are feeling that temptation so strongly to turn their back on Jesus and go along with the world. Let's be in this together as a team and support one another. Here's my four words to those of us who are not suffering right now. Check that you are a child of God. Thank God for all that He is providing. Prepare for future suffering and play the team game. What about for those of us who are here tonight and we are suffering? What do we do in light of this truth that God is lovingly disciplining us? I've got five words for you. Number one, endure. Endure the suffering as discipline. Press on, keep going. Four times throughout this passage, that key word endure comes up. It's there in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 and verse 7. This passage is trying to inspire us to endurance. Endurance acknowledges that it's difficult, it acknowledges the pain, but it says, it's worth it. Get to the end, keep going, the finish line is there, the reward is waiting, endure. Second thing for us to do, cry out to God in the pain. There is nothing unfaithful or faithless about crying out to God in anguish. I'm so thankful that in the Psalms that we have in the scriptures, we have records of people crying out to God. Jot down in your outline there Psalm 6. You might like to go back and read this in full later on. I'm going to read the start of Psalm 6 for us and hear the anguish of the author. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, they fail because of all my foes. Those are the words of someone in pain. If that's what you are feeling, call out to God with honest pain. I'm so glad that verse 11 is there in Hebrews 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. We're not called by this truth of God's discipline to some stoic resilience that says, oh, pain? Now, what pain? Everything's all good. It's fine. I'm okay. It's not what we're called to. Nor are we being called to some Buddhist detachment from the world that doesn't feel pain because we don't actually love anything. No, we can admit that we are feeling pain. We can bring that to God and as we do so, As we bring our pain to God, that leads to the third word for us in our suffering. We trust God. As we cry out to God in pain, often we're asking, why? Why? And I think we often mean something more specific. Perhaps, why me? That other person over there, they deserve it more. Why me? And why now? And why this much pain? And why for this long Now, God probably won't answer those specific whys. Why it's your turn now and not someone else's. Or why it's happening now. Or why there is this much pain and not less. Or why it lasts this long. God probably won't answer those questions. But He has given you in this passage a broad and general why that is a solid rock on which to stand. He has told you that this suffering is the love of an all-wise father to a child. I'm not asking you to understand it, but I am asking you to trust it, to trust Him. Will you do that? Fourth word for us in suffering, cooperate with God's ends in discipline. Earlier, we picked up on the good ends that God is working in us through His discipline life and holiness and peace and righteousness. I'll leave you to look at the detail of this one later, but as you hit verse 14, it's interesting to note that the first command is to pursue holiness and peace. So, because God is disciplining us, we're then called to cooperate with what He is achieving in us. Pursue those things that God is disciplining you to achieve. Now, the fifth word, this is the final one that we'll land on. In the midst of all of this, as we feel the pain and battle to keep trusting God, Hebrews 12 calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, we will find strength to endure. Have a look at verse 1 to 3. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before Him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In our suffering, fix your eyes on Jesus. On the one hand, that's helpful to see God's love for you demonstrated fully at the cross that Jesus died for you there. That's not quite what Hebrews is picking up on here is the value of looking to Jesus. Here, the focus is that God is not calling you to do anything other than what He Himself has done as Jesus the Son. Jesus endured mockery. Jesus endured flogging. Remember earlier I said that word in in verse 6, translated punishing, it's actually flogging. Jesus has been through that. That's why the word is used there. He was beaten by the soldiers that captured him. He faced imprisonment and and ultimately he suffered the most shameful death that has ever been conceived on this earth, Roman crucifixion. Jesus endured all that pain with his eyes fixed on the long-term pleasure that was on the other side of the cross. Notice that in verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, looking beyond the cross, he scorned the shame of the cross. And having suffered, he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in glory, waiting to welcome us there. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's been through it. He's made it to the other side. He can sympathize with you in your pain. And he's the security, the anchor, the solidity of our hope that if we endure we will enter into glory just as He has. Here's my five words for us who are suffering. Endure, cry out to God in the pain, trust God, cooperate with God's ends in discipline, and all the while keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. On Friday when I was walking to the Michael Joseph Savage Memorial, I pushed through that initial moment of wanting to turn back to the car, I kept going Ended up walking 45 minutes to the top of the hill. As I got to the top, what would have been a beautiful view on a sunny day was destroyed by pelting rain and howling winds. I didn't have an umbrella and I was cold and I thought, this was not worth it. I should have turned around and gone back. What the heck am I doing here? Uh, Thankfully, I could only walk eight minutes to a bus and catch a bus back to my car. I wasn't walking 45 minutes in the rain. But it was not worth it. Friends, that is not how the Christian life will end. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God has stored up for us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Our hope does not disappoint us. Our light and momentary struggles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So endure suffering, for God disciplines His children in love. Let me pray.